let's get into uh, God's Word, guys. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning, um, reading verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we will uh, get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you. Please keep it and... Uh, And um, let God speak to you through it. But all right, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let me uh, read it, pray, and then we'll dive in. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame. To take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Scott's word. Let's let's pray. God, even as we begin to um, dive into the scriptures this morning, we want to start with the posture you identify here in the text, or the posture of humility, coming under, getting low, bowing down, Lord, so often if we're honest, we come to your word and we try to massage it, manipulate it, make it what we want it to be, make it say what we want it to say, tell you how we think you ought to run the world. Lord, this morning we want to repent of that. We want to come and say, God, you speak. Your servant is listening. You speak. You shape us. The clay doesn't shape the potter. The potter shapes the clay. Would you use your word this morning to break us and heal us all at once? I pray that those that come in weighed down and burdened would find rest for their souls in Jesus. I pray you'd show us all that is ours in him. So that we can forego the vying for the seed of honor in this world. (laughs) Let others have it. We have Jesus and he is more than enough. God, would you use me this morning to speak to your people, I pray. Would you give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond appropriately to your revealed word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Let me open... This way, um, you can ask any official leader, I, I think, in this church, any um, elder or deacon who has gone through a um, training or installation kind of process with me, um, typically what will happen is there'll be some sort of initial evaluation, and then we'll move towards... Um, uh, orientation, or what you might call the basic training, if you will. And for 
every leader that I at least can get my hands on uh, and have a chance to influence and, 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 and train, uh, regardless of what their role will be, whether they'll be an elder, whether they'll be a deacon, whether they'll be a home group leader, staff member, something like that, there are always, when we get to this process of just kind of orientation and some of the basic things I hope to get across, there are always two things that I'm going to open up with. There are always two things that I'm hoping to just kind of lay in the foundation, just drive into the heart of any leader in this church. And those two things are gospel centrality and gospel humility. By gospel centrality, that really shouldn't come as a surprise to you if you see in the bulletin what our mission statement is, if you've gotten a sense of even how I preach and teach. I hope that it's quite clear that we see the gospel as the center of everything that we do, in particular, the center of God's revelation to us in the scriptures. Jesus is on every page. And the mission statement here, you know, Mercy Hill exists to help restore us to God, neighbor, and city. How? Through the good news of the gospel. Through the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no restoration to God. There is no restoration to neighbor in community. There is no restoration to the city and a a purposeful life. There is no restoration to those things if the gospel isn't at the center. So gospel centrality is the first thing that I try to make sure our leaders have in just their DNA. But gospel centrality must be coupled with gospel humility. Or in my mind, it's worthless. What I mean by gospel humility is that not only do our leaders or just Christians in general, we hope in this church, uh, know kind of gospel doctrine, understand the work of the cross, learn to see it in the scriptures, not only can we talk about it, But we've actually been crushed by it, broken by it, humbled by it, reshaped by it. So it's not just a doctrine that we hold out. It's not just something we talk about. It's something that we represent and we manifest with our lives. People should not just be able to read the gospel off of my lips or in my writing They should be able to read it off of my life. As they see in me. I wish brighter, but probably faint shadows, glimmers of the Savior. We lay our lives down. I mean, there are ways, right? You've experienced this. There are ways of arguing and talking about God's truth while using the devil's tone. You've heard that sort of thing? You've been a part of some of those conversations where we're talking about the atonement or we're talking about the work of the cross, but we're doing it with this arrogance and this pride and this yuck that just completely contradicts the very thing that we are defending in that moment. There, There is no swagger at the foot of the cross. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for any of it. It crushes us as it heals us. So I want leaders that don't lead from on high. We lead from down low. And um, I try with all my might. To, to drive those sorts of things into the heart of our leaders, gospel centrality, gospel humility, so that hopefully it will percolate out, it will start to expand out into the members and the culture of this church at large. That's what I want more than anything. A cross-centered church and a cross-cultured church. When I say cross-culture, you know if you've been around what I mean by that. A culture in this church that looks like the cross. We know it, we can talk about it, we see it, and we look like it in the way that we live, love, serve. Now, you may be wondering here at 
why do I bring this up given the text that we just had? Well, I think in particular, gospel humility is foregrounded in uh, the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 7 through 11. I I need to say, uh, I am going to skip over verses 1 through 6. Um, I hate to do that. If you know me, you know I hate to do that. But uh, because it's a very similar scene to actually what we were looking at even last week in Luke 13, 10 through 17, uh, with this synagogue, uh, Sabbath, or not a synagogue, I'm sorry, but Sabbath and healing and controversy, very similar discussion. I thought, you know what, for the sake of time, I need to move beyond that. Even though there's new things I could bring out, I am going to pass, and I want to focus in on the parable Jesus gives us in verses 7 through 11. Two things I'm going to bring out. Again, uh, I'm hoping to cultivate gospel humility in this place, and I think that's what Jesus is doing with this parable. But two things I want to, um, two headings I'm going to organize my thoughts under. You'll see it on your handout. Uh, first, the place of honor, and then second, the heart of the matter. The place of honor in the heart of the matter. Um, so let's get into this. First, the place of honor. So back up in verse 1, you'll notice that there is this ruler of the Pharisees. Um, what exactly that means, we're not quite sure. Was he a Pharisee that was a part of the Sanhedrin? Was he a ruler within the Pharisaical kind of religious party of the day? We're not quite sure. All we know is that he was an important man. A significant man in in the uh, Jewish culture there. And he invites Jesus and some other guests, it would seem, over to his house for a Sabbath day meal. Um, Perhaps after, probably after kind of worshiping that morning in the synagogue, then come on over to my house afterwards for, um, you know, whatever, matzah, whatever they're doing. Uh, And so what we notice is, And what Luke brings out in verse 7 there uh, is that as these guys and the guests are kind of filing into the uh, banquet to uh, the table here, they're all kind of vying and jockeying and kind of jostling and moving and pushing to try to get what our text calls the places of honor. They want to sit down in certain seats because it would basically say they were more significant than others. Uh, the thoughts that come to my mind in terms of modern day analogy, at least to this kind of uh, jostling for a seat. I, I don't know if you were like me when you were a kid, but like any time me and my siblings would be going to the car, right? We're about to go on a drive. I and mean, what's the first thing you're calling out? Shotgun! Did anybody do this? Anybody do? Shotgun! I called it! No, I called it! You're pushing. Some of you might not even know what shotgun is. It's the passenger seat. It's the place of honor, Right? It's that plate for a kid, that's, that's it. That's as high as it gets up there in the front. You know, the little uh, peons in the back left to fend for themselves. You're up there on the throne, right? Or you might think of, um, you know, that game musical chairs where there's always, there's never quite enough chairs for the kids. And so it, get, it can get aggressive as you're going and you're diving in. And you kind of imagine that sort of a scene taking place here at this man's house. Although I'm sure I'm exaggerating a bit. There's this sort of, I want to sit, I want to sit, I want to get me in that seat because it will say something about me. Now, before I go any further on this, um, I do at least want to give you a basic sense of the context in ancient Israel at the time. It does seem that social status, your social status would play into kind of where you would sit around the table at some of these meals, which is kind of a crazy thought. Um, and you imagine that would, that would be hard and feel weird if we had our seats around my table numbered and the people I liked were here. And, but in, in, in their day, it was a part of the culture, not just in Israel, but I think even in the Greco-Roman world as well. And at least in Israel here, what you'd find is that the, uh, vicinity, the closer you were to the host, the better you were. The places of honor in our text would have been nearest to the host. And so these guys were trying to get there. Um, I was, again, just trying to think of modern analogies for this idea of a place of honor. And I do think some of the remnants of this idea 
uh, still uh, carried over kind of into how we do wedding ceremonies even to this day, right? Uh, when you have kind of the bride and the groom, they're the host, if you will, of this big party. And then who's sitting next to them typically? But it's going to be, you know, the best man and the maid of honor. There's something to be said there, but then we can expand this out into all of life and we recognize that there are places of honor everywhere and we kind of understand it as a culture, even if it goes unspoken. If I were just to give you one example, you might think of how we do seating on airplanes, right? You might think of the whole first class versus coach thing. I, I I don't know if you've ever flown first class before, but I'm not going to have you raise your hands. It's not right. But okay, listen, I. I got to fly first class once by accident, all right? Uh, I, I don't even remember why. It was so long ago now. Maybe they messed up my itinerary or they, uh, they felt sorry for me. or something. I'm not quite sure what it was. But one way or another, there were open seats, and I got one of them. And I'm up there, and I kid you not, um, they bring out these like little... They bring out like these warm towel things, right? They're like they're moist water towel. They set it down in front of me, and I'm going... I haven't had a meal yet. I haven't made a mess. What do I do with this thing? You know, I don't, I'm, I'm feeling very insecure. Like I don't belong here. Kind of like looking out the corner of my eye, you know, trying to figure out what others are doing with it. I see the kind of the, the first class aficionado next to me. You know, I don't want him to know I'm looking at him, but I watch what he's doing. He kind of puts the thing on his face. You know, he lounges back as if to kind of say, man, I'm so glad I'm not with those other guys back in coach. You know, look at me up here. Then kind of wipes his hands and hands it back to, you know, the stewardess, as if she were a, a servant or something. And I just realized, wow, there's this whole ritual of the rich and famous going on up here that, that us common folk in the back didn't have any idea it's going on. And a lot of the reasons why, right? They, they, they when, when, they, it's like they almost don't want you to see it, right? You know, that little curtain thing that they, okay, look, listen to me. What I'm trying to say is we have these lines and we reinforce them. We, we, we bring a curtain and, and we close it in between first class and coach as if to say, listen, we don't even want you taking, breathing the same air as the folks up here. You're not even worthy of looking on their back, right? And so when you get that place, when you get that seat, it does something to you and you want that. So in our text, it's almost like these guys are kind of jockeying and vying for first class, if you will. Like, get me up there. That's where the dudes are with the Rolexes or the, I guess it's the Apple Watches now. That's where the dudes are with the, you know, getting the work done and the success and they're on the phone talking because they're, they're, they're important people. Get me up there. What does Jesus have to say about all of this? He goes on to share a parable. And I want to read it, those verses again to you now, verses 7 through 11. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. That's all that's left. You tried for the best and you got moved down. All that's left is that spot way in the corner. Hey, can you pass me this atziki? Nobody can even hear me so far away from the host. Verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. With this parable, Jesus is speaking against pride and presumption, competition and comparison, self-exertion, and self-promotion. I, I love the way that the ESV study Bible sums up kind of his message here. This is how they put it. It is better to be humble than humiliated. <laughs> Meaning, it's better to go low and be asked to step up than to aim for the stars and be told, brother, get down. 
Step down, this ain't for you. Better to be humble than humiliated. Now, if I could just pause for a moment and say, what a word for Silicon Valley. I mean, what a message for the valley in which we live, right? Where the, the whole ethos of this place, the, the, the whole culture, the whole economy, the whole industry seems to rely on exactly the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do here. Namely, self-promotion and, 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 and putting your best foot forward and dog-eat-dog, elbowing out, getting the spot that you need so you can survive, that sort of a thing. I mean, you might look at what Jesus says here and go, if I followed this, it would be over. My career would be done. Because if I'm not pushing and clawing and making sure everybody knows about my victories and I hide all of my losses and make sure the boss and all these things hear that and see my resume and do all this, if I don't do that, listen, there is just another guy waiting in line who's ready to take that seat and he'll do whatever it takes. He's already bearing teeth. He's ready to pounce. Wow, what a word for us in this city. So this is going to rub a bit. This is going to test us a bit. But then we also realize, if you didn't, I'll fill you in now, that Jesus here is not ultimately talking about how to act at dinner parties or at the office or something. He's ultimately talking about how things will go in the end. I mean, the idea of a wedding feast really just flashes forward to Revelation 19, 20, those places where we see, you know, that there's going to be this final day judgment and God's people will come in, but there will be others who think, like we saw, I think it was even last week, think that they're there around the table and just go, I'm sorry, no, I don't see your name on the list. That there is going to come a day where we will stand before a holy God. And he is going to uh, take those people who think they're awesome and put on a good show and expose them for what they really are. And then he's going to take those people who, who were broken and humble and, and the cross just crushed them, the gospel just crushed them, and they felt like they were just in the dirt. And he's going to elevate them to a seat next to him in glory. So there's a lot at stake in these verses, not just socially and culturally, but eternally. And we better think about them deeply. So what I wanted to do here, before I get into the heart of the matter, and heading number two, I simply want to ask a few questions to help you see where you stand with this place of honor. Where you're at when it comes to the places of honor around the tables of this world. Are you after it? Are you free from it? What, what does it look like in your life? Let me just ask a few questions for you to reflect on and consider prayerfully. How do you feel when others are recognized for their accomplishments, but not you? Boss just passed you over. Mom or dad just passed you over. Pastor just passed you over. Does another person's success cause you to celebrate with them or to secretly seethe with jealousy or even bitterness? Scrolling through your Facebook feed. You see someone else's success. You see someone else living it up. Someone else just got a house. Someone else just had, you know, this promotion. Someone else, whatever. How do you feel? Well, praise God. Look at your grace to them. Or, why not me? That's supposed to be my place. I want their place. Not theirs. Are there certain tasks you feel are beneath you for someone else, but not for you? Maybe not say it, but you feel it. That's beneath me. You may even feel that way about set. We're calling for you know help with the setup team, setting up chairs. 
Not my gifts. Come on. I'm waiting for that spot to open up in the pulpit. I'm waiting for that spot to open up with, you know, whatever. I remember I was part of the Calvary Chapel movement. Um, I got saved in the Calvary Chapel movement. And it's almost like this kind of legend stuff that they talk about. The guy who founded it, Chuck Smith. And uh, one of the stories that would circulate about him is he would go around the church with him and he would pick up the trash and just put it in a bag. You know, and it, nothing was too low for him was the idea. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Are there certain tasks you feel are beneath you? Does praise from others inflate you and fill you with joy and energy? But criticism, does it deflate you into depression and despair? In other words, do the opinions of people mean have just a little too much power? It's okay to be encouraged. It's okay to be discouraged. But do you notice, wow, when they're, when they're on you for good, you're just, on, you're just on cloud nine. And when they're against you, you feel like your life is over. Maybe we need the praise a little too much. You find yourself tossing and turning in bed at night, worrying about what people are thinking of you, how you've been perceived, how you'll be perceived. Am I the only one? Had a couple of those nights this past week. Do you always have to get a word in? Or are you okay sitting back, listening and sharing if and when the time seems appropriate? Do you need to, you need to get your opinions out. You need them to know what you think. You need them. No, you, they can't have a wrong idea of you. Another question would be, do you always have to be right? Do you always have to have the last word? Do you always have to win the argument? When's the last time you really said, I am sorry? sorry and you meant it do you roll your eyes at others maybe you wouldn't say it with your words but you're saying it with your actions you're a fool I am the epitome of wisdom listen the reason why I ask all of these questions is to kind of help us see Help us see how we're doing this. How we're, instead of coming under under people and, and, and living for them, we oftentimes come against and try to come over and we try to get that place. We kind of try to show how we belong somewhere that they don't, how we should get what they don't, how we, you know, we deserve the honor. We need the honor. We want that place. We have all sorts of ways of trying to get it. We crave the praise of man and someone to notice us or validate us. In other words, we're just like these guests. <laughs> In so many ways, we're just like these guests. And Jesus has a lot to teach us. I'll tell you just a quick story. I just thought it was its very interesting how God works in my life. And it's humbling. <laughs> I was out so sometimes on my Sermon prep days, I will go running. Uh, to kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll work for about half the day or whatever in my study. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, listen, I need to get out, get a fresh view of this text, if you will. Uh, think, pray on it a little bit differently. And I, I find that running actually really helps me. And I'll, you know, keep writing notes, stop in my, in my phone and whatnot. And I had literally been writing these questions down, uh, as I was running kind of out around my house. Uh, and, and then I, I picked back up, started running again. And, and it's like I just got this, this window into the way this stuff is at work in my own heart. <laughs> it, it was, it was very interesting and sad. Uh, but I'm running and as I'm going, I hear this guy coming behind me. This other guy running. This, this never happens, okay? I'm usually, I'm out in the middle of the day, like, what? Is, and I hear this other guy comes, and he, and he passes me. He passes me. And I'm sitting, you know, like, I'm, I'm meditating on being humble and not needing that first place, you know, and, and I'm going, what in the, you know, what has happened? There's something in me, the competitor in me, whatever it is, all the years of sports, just pride, listen, my sin, let's just put it there. No way, you don't do this and get away with it. Uh-uh, the guy just blows right by me. So I'm thinking, first, here's what starts to happen. I mean, I, can't, I just saw it clear as day. Here, here's kind of the steps that I went through. 
The first thing was I looked around to make sure no one else saw me just get humiliated, right? Literally, this is what I'm watching happen. Does anybody else see that? And then I'm thinking, you know, all of a sudden I notice I'm picking up pace. You know, I think he's way up there and I know I'm not going to get him. But I start, I'm swinging fast. You know, what's going on? I'm not going to catch him. But then I start, okay, then I start to make excuses. I start to make excuses. What happens next? Uh, yeah, I'm just warming up before I go and actually, you know, work out or something like that. This, I'm, uh, this, is, this guy's probably, you know, he's probably a, one of those long distance guys. This is what, I start justifying, making these excuses for myself. And then the last thing, I'm serious, you guys, this is so embarrassing. But I start to, I start to trash talk him in my mind. I'm cutting him down. I'm going, look at that form. This guy's ridiculous. Look at those shorts. Have you ever seen runners, guys in runner shorts? Listen, you may have them, that's fine. But it's like the whole thigh, it's just, it's not okay. But I'm cutting him down because I feel like he took my honor. He got the place. It's mine. I'm going, oh my goodness. Look at that. Look at that. Look at me. I give you a humorous example. I could give you a hundred more sinister, dark, wicked things that go on in this heart. I'm with the guests around that table vying for the place of honor. Now, the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter, All I want to do now with the rest of our time is try to ask and answer the question, why? Why do we want the places of honor so badly? Why do we jostle and fight? And why does it mean so much to us? Why do we have to get there? So we're willing to hurt others. We're willing to lie about ourselves. Why? What does it promise us? What does it offer us? What is, what's behind that? And hopefully, as I give you these three reasons, we'll also kind of make our way towards kind of what freedom looks like in Christ. So, reason number one, why do these places of honor mean so much to us? Why do we vie for these places? I think it's that we're insecure. And we think that if we can get in that seat, it will somehow justify us. It will somehow prove that we are right, that we are okay. I think that in every single one of us, there is a sense that we're broken, that we're off, that we're wrong, that we're not all that we ought to be, created in the image of God, and it's been marred, and we're, we, 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 we know this. We sense it. Romans 1 says we, we, we know God and we know that we're off. But we have these foolish ways of trying to convince ourselves that we're okay because we don't want to go the full the, the route of the cross and actually say, you're right, I am wrong, I am horrible, I, am, I do need help and I can't do it. No, we say, nah. Instead, I've got to prove myself. I gotta convince others. I, 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 I gotta convince myself. Maybe even I'm trying to prove to God that I, I am worth it. I am good enough. I am right. I am okay. We try to justify ourselves and we think if we can just get in that seat and hear the praise of others and feel that sense of significance, well then, we will have security. We will know that we're worth something. We will know that we're okay. But that's not how it ever works all this sort of thing ever ends up leading to is uneasiness and anxiety backbiting competing condemning criticizing all it ends with is 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 is, is me running behind a guy who's clearly beating me and trash talking him in my mind just pathetic stuff and anxiety it never leads to that sense of ah things are okay We may secure that seat at this dinner party. But what about the next one? What if the host invites some people higher up the chain than me? People more beautiful, people more knowledgeable, people more skilled, people with more money, more stuff. Where's my seat going to be around the table then? So you can feel the instability of it. Even as you're trying to kind of secure yourself, you feel the insecurity. It never, it never fixes things. It just kind of makes it worse. Um, 
Tim Keller uh, clued me into a, a an interview actually a long while back with Madonna that I was really interested in, and I, I went back and and I, I read some of it and. Um, is profound, the sort of things that you see going on in her heart, the window that you get into uh, the superstar's heart. This was back in 1991, this interview, when she was kind of at the top of things, right? And um, what you end up seeing is that underneath a lot of this drive, underneath a lot of this, you know, craving for success or the places of honor is insecurity, in a sense that I need to justify myself because I don't feel right. And maybe if I get everyone else to say I'm right, I'll feel right. Listen to this. This is her in, in the interview. Nobody works the way that I work. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. She just says it. I wish everyone were this honest. I'm always struggling with that fear. I pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling or I'm sorry, horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended. And it probably never will. You hear that, right? And to a lesser extent, we've all experienced I say lesser extent because she, she had the seat of honor. She had it. But that's it. You're on the top. 1991, this is it for her. And she's still saying, note this, it's not enough. It never fixes things. It never goes away. I wonder what you'd find if you talked to her today. She's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not with the times, you could say, but I, I assume that she's slipping into irrelevancy. As other ladies like, you know, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, whoever are coming in. Yeah, sure, they may call them the new Madonna or something, but the reality is is that her time is running out. And you know it. You're getting older and you can't get the attention of the public the way that you once did. The praise, that seat, that place of honor. She felt that even back when she had it. And we feel that too. This insecurity, and we push for the places of honor to justify, and it never works. And against all of our efforts here, we can put the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I mean, this is part of the reason for Jesus' words. It's part of the implication. When he's on the cross, dying for yours and my sin, he would say, it is finished. What does he mean? I mean, we completed the work required to save, to justify a fallen humanity. It is done. In other words, all these people over here vying for the places of honor, trying, their work is never done. It's never done. There's always another dinner party where you got to play musical chairs again, call shotgun again, get into the first class behind the curtain again. But over here, it is finished. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we should have died. Rose again from the dead. Lives to make intercession for us. Ephesians 2 even says, We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Even now, by faith through the Spirit, we're there. We have God's affection, God's love. We are right. There is a um, parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 where he connects the very same principle he gives us in our text in, in verse 11 um, with this idea of justification. And I wanted to read it. Obviously, we'll get to that and, um, when we get to Luke 18, but I wanted to read it here as well so you could see it. Because the way you get to this place of, of rest 
the way you get to freedom from, from vying for the places of honor is by humbling yourself, like he says. Saying, I can't. I, I am broken. I can't fix it. And I need you. Watch how this plays out in this parable. This is Luke 18, verse 9. You can just listen. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, second man, this tax collector on his face, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, and here it is straight from our text as well, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted you caught it, right? The guy who thinks it's on him to justify and he's ready to do it. He's ready to put forward his best and self-promote and all this. Man, he says, that guy's the guy who on the last day, it's going to be flipped. All that really did is make him more wicked because he just got proud and arrogant. You heard it. He's just looking, I'm thinking, I'm not like that guy or that guy or that guy. Woo, I'm set apart. First class. Feels good. God says, you don't get the cross and you don't get the depths of sin. In your need. You can't fix it. He said, now that other guy in the back who wouldn't dare go after the place of honor because he knows what he deserves. The guy on his face beating his breast saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That guy gets it. On the last day, that's the guy who will be sitting around the table in the kingdom of heaven. He goes home justified. He's right. Even though he knows he's wrong, because he knows Jesus, he's right. And there's the freedom. When we trust Christ for our justification, we trust Christ to secure that place of honor for us, we are free. Let let others have the seat. It doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Reason number two. Reason number two, why do we vie for this place of honor? Why do we push and fight? Why does it mean so much to us? I think it's because we are empty and we think it will satisfy us. We're empty and we think it will satisfy us. I'm dissatisfied at a fundamental level and I feel like somehow getting in that place of honor, getting people to praise me will fill a hole that I have. Not necessarily talking about right or wrong anymore. I'm talking about that whole, uh, the, the desires, the, the dissatisfaction that human beings have in the, in the center of their being because they were created for God, but they won't come back to Him through repentance and faith. So we all have this hole, and a lot of us think the place of honor will fill it. If I get there where everyone notices me and it's my name in the lights, it will fill that hole, I'll feel better. Finally satisfied. Now, one of the things I tell people when they're interested in leadership and things here, because I think you could say, at least in the church setting, a position of leadership or something may be considered like a place of honor, right? Oh, if I could just get there, get in the pulpit, get, you know, the leader of that group or that ministry. Ah, okay, place of honor. Here's what I tell anyone who wants to be a leader. (laughs) You know you're ready to be a leader when you no longer need to be one. You catch that? You know you're ready to be a leader when you no longer need to be one. In other words, if you need it, if you need that position, that place of honor, then there's something wrong. You're not ready 
You're not going to lead from a place of fullness and satisfaction in Jesus. You're going to lead from a place of, of need and dependency. You're not going to pour out for the people under your care. You're going to devour them because you need something. For, where's the praise? This is harder than I thought. You get into ministry, really any position of leadership, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm talking here in particular context of, of ministry leadership. You get into ministry leadership and you find out very quick, you don't get a whole lot of trophies and pats on the back. Oftentimes what you get is hardship and, and it tests your faith. There's awesome stuff that happens, but the reality is, it, it is, and the Bible would say, it's a lot more like taking up your cross than, than, than sitting on a throne. That's why Paul would say of his ministry, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You can see it on my back that I'm a leader in the church. I've been lashed and broken. That's what it means. If you don't have a place of fullness in Jesus, you will never be satisfied with leadership or a place of honor in a church. Ever. And it's that way in the secular world as well and pursuing these things, right? If you're not satisfied in Christ, nothing will. Nothing will. No amount of praise, no amount of success, no amount of money will. No, not going to happen. But if you are satisfied in Christ, here's the catch. It doesn't matter to you anymore where you go, where he calls you. It's just obedience and faithfulness. However big or small in the world's eyes, if Jesus is there with you, it's big to you. This is one of the reasons why um, when you see God preparing people for leadership uh, in you know among his people especially like i'm thinking the old testament but even the new testament church and things when you see god preparing people uh to kind of be placed at the front maybe in placed in a place of honor or something what you watch him doing every time is he makes sure first that they are that they know the secret of being satisfied in him so you might read through some of these old stories in the, in, the, in the scriptures and you realize that this is perhaps one of the reasons why he uses the wilderness. What have you thought of this? Like with Moses, okay? Before Moses is put at the head of Israel to lead them right into the promised land or whatever, out of Egypt and things and all this glorious stuff, what happens with Moses? It's 40 years. It's 40 years in the wilderness. I'm not talking about 40 years with Israel. I'm talking about 40 years in the wilderness uh, watching sheep in Midian. Just watching sheep. Watching dirty, stinky animals. Why? So that he'd lose this idea that I need a place of honor. And I need something, somebody to recognize me. And he'd learn the secret of satisfaction in God. I got God. I can watch sheep. The menial becomes meaningful when you have Jesus. And he's there. Then you're ready to lead. Or... Same sort of thing with David. So Samuel is going to anoint one of Jesse's king or Jesse's sons as king, right? And and he goes, okay, bring them all out, and all the big strapping young lads come forth. And go, no, this isn't the one. This isn't the one. Where, where where's David? Where where's the youngest guy? Oh, he's out where? Out in the wilderness with the sheep. Or you look at Paul, and Jesus shows up to Paul. Uh, on the road to Damascus. Man, he says, I'm going to use you for great things. But then in Galatians, Paul tells us the very first thing that he did. The very first thing he felt compelled to do. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia. Presumably the desert there. He got alone with God. He learned the secret of being full in God. God revealed himself to him. Jesus revealed himself to him. Then he was ready to be put at the front because, brothers and sisters, it's hard. It's not what you think. It's not going to fill you. If you're not filled in Jesus, it won't fill you. It'll destroy you and the people under you. <sighs> Let me read this to you. Zach S. One, I love his book, um, The Imperfect Pastor. He's writing to pastors. It's relevant to all of us. He talks about this text that we're looking at in Luke 14, and he's writing, and he, here, here's what he says. Smaller is always better than larger, unless and only if God extrudes us 
Extrude, fancy word. I had to look it up. It means thrusts us out. <laughs> Pushes us out. Smaller is always better than larger unless God moves us out to the larger. Otherwise, take the smaller. He says we lose rest of soul when we believe that bigger is better. The serpent tempts all of us to believe that some places matter more than others, that some people matter more than others, and that our strategies and gifts, rather than God, God's wise calling, are our answers. But in Luke 14, 7 through 11, Jesus teaches those who follow him to seek the lowest, not the highest, seats at the table. Francis Schaeffer points out how many of us pastors believe the opposite of what Jesus teaches. In our way of thinking, we are tempted to say, I'll take the larger place because it will give me more influence for Jesus Christ. But Jesus teaches us that we should determine to take the lower place unless the Lord himself extrudes us into a larger one. We're tempted to take up something big in our own eyes or in the eyes of others for his name and we lose sight of him altogether. Not only does the smaller place enable us humbly and gratefully to have a seat at the table, it enables us daily to sit in his presence, eating his food, hearing his words, delighting in him. Who would ever want to leave this seat? Take the smaller seat then, the seat that allows you such presence with Jesus, instead of the large seat that would take this quiet from you. Only go if the one who calls is going there with you. Only go if you are ready to remain committed there, regardless of size, to the small, mostly overlooked, mattering things in Jesus. And just this guy is just, he speaks to my soul. It brings out so many beautiful implications from our text. What he's saying, in essence, guys, is this. It doesn't matter how big or small what you're doing is. What matters is, is if Jesus is there. Jesus is enough. He said, if you take the last seat at the table, but Jesus is there, that is plenty. Jesus is there. <laughs> Let him call you up. Let him tell you to do something else. But it won't matter to you anymore. Whether you're changing diapers or you're speaking to thousands. The meaning is meaningful because Jesus is with you and it's satisfying. So you're free. If we get this from Jesus, if we understand this with Jesus, if we let him mentor us into this way of life, we're free. Let him have the place of honor in this world. We're satisfied in Him. We will be seated around that table in heaven. Now, last thing, last reason, and I'll need to wrap things up quickly here for us. We are um, vying for places of honor. We push and fight for it, I think, because we have this tendency to be nearsighted. And forget how the story ends. We have this tendency to kind of go, go black, go dark to eternity. And make it all about the here and now. We lose the eternal perspective. It becomes all about what people are saying about me now. And here's what we realize. Um, if this world is all there is, well then okay. The jockeying, the, the fighting makes sense. You better get that seat. But if there is eternity, and if what Jesus is talking about here isn't just your seating arrangement at a dinner party, but he's actually talking about the kingdom of heaven, an everlasting life. And he's talking about the God who's going to right every wrong. The God who knows all the games people play and is going to expose that. The God who, who is going to lift up the humble who trusted him to the end. And we're faithful even in the little things. He's going to remember that. If that's the world we live in, if that's the perspective we have, well then to fight and push for the here and now is so nearsighted and blind. When we let eternity come in, when we let that light come streaming in, we don't need the seat around the tables of this world any longer. We know our seat is secure in Him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you read your Bibles carefully, you will see 
that if this life is all that there is, this world is all that there is, man, so many of these biblical characters in these stories, it ends horribly for them. If you just cut it off and you don't factor in eternity and you stop, it's horrible. Who wants to be a Christian or a follower of God? I mean, think about this with me. Just give you a couple examples and then I promise I'll be landing this plane. <laughs> I'll tell you, some of you are in first class right now. That was up front, right? <laughs> a couple examples. Abraham. God says, Abe, I've got great plans for you. I got great plans for you. I want you to leave your homeland because I got a land for you. Let me take you to it. And he says, oh, and also look up. You see the stars? I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber those. It's going to be crazy. Whole people are going to come from you. It's going to be awesome. Abe's like, okay, this sounds good. Let's go. He's on his way out. Let me tell you how the story with Abraham ends. He dies a sojourner in the land. It's not his own. It'd be over 600 years before Israel starts to take Canaan. And God says, all right, it's time to move. He's buried in a, in a, in a, in a, in a land that, that doesn't, well, I suppose he did buy it, but it's almost like on faith. But he's, he's, he's buried in, in a land that doesn't belong to him. He's a sojourner. He's living in tents. And as far as the kids go, he had a few kids and a few grandkids. And that was it. And then the, 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 the curtain just drops and the story's over. Or is it? If this life is all there is, then Abe's life is a tragedy. He missed out. He got no honor. But when eternity is factored in, all of a sudden he becomes a prime example to us of what it means to, to be victorious in the Christian life. Hebrews 11, um, the author of Hebrews there says this of Abraham. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He knew I'm not ultimately looking to a land here. I'm looking forward to the city of God. Abraham might not have had a place of honor around the tables of this world. He was intense. Oh, how he'll be sitting in a place of honor in the kingdom of heaven, in the city of God. Or you think of Paul. You go, where's the place of honor for Paul? You want to know how his story ended? In a prison cell. He writes his last epistle to, to, to Timothy, Second Timothy. He writes this while in prison awaiting execution. Anybody want that seat around the table of this world? That sound good? But Paul himself would say, listen, if this life is all that there is, we are the most to be pitied because it's going to be hard. It's going to go wrong. It's going to seem like it ends bad, just like it did for Jesus. But just like it did for Jesus, we believe in the resurrection. And if eternity is real, then God writes every wrong and turns the down up. And those who are humbled and broken are elevated and healed. And those who found themselves in prison cells in this world will find themselves around the table in the kingdom of God. Justified, satisfied. Dare I say in Christ, honored. That's it. You start to see that and you can let go. You can let someone else get the promotion and maybe even be happy for them. You can let go of the criticism someone gave and say, you know what, it's all right. My God is singing over me in Jesus. Am I still a broken person? A lot to learn? Yes. But I don't have to win the approval of the masses to be right. I am already right before the only audience that matters. Start letting it go because it's already ours in Jesus. Amen. God, thank you for giving us your word that orients us along our, along our pilgrimage, in our sojourning. Man, this world oh, runs so contrary to your world, to your word. God, our nature runs so contrary to your word. We need you through the word, by your spirit, to illuminate our hearts so we see as real the things that you are saying here.
And we see Christ who's gone before us in this. Who knows what it's like to take the lowest seat and then be told by his father, get up into the seat of honor. My boy, welcome home. What an amazing savior we have. What an amazing example. We know that you are conforming us in your image. God, we lay it down. We don't want the place of honor around this world if it means, around the tables of this world if it means we have to forsake being around your table. So we come and we eat. We come and we sit. We gather around that table again with you this morning. Amen.